Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to 1 Kings in chapter 5, which is on page 306 in the Church Bible. 1 Kings chapter 5, and we'll read the first nine verses of this chapter. One Kings five, let's hear the word of God. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I, set, whom I, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and will have them broken apart there. Then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. As we come to 1 Kings chapters 5, 6, 7 and 8, you read those, you glance your eyes over them, you realise Solomon is engaged in a big building programme. It is a genuine account, it's not a piece of propaganda, it's not a piece of idealistic history. He is engaged in a building programme and the temple is what dominates his building program in Jerusalem. And chapter 5 concerns Solomon's preparations for the building of this temple. But you will have noticed, I hope, in chapter 5, three occasions when he mentions the temple, but he doesn't call it the temple. It is called the house for my name, or a house for the name of the Lord. He first expresses that as he speaks to Hiram there in verse 3. David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God. And then he says twice in verse 5, Behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And the end of the verse, He shall build the house for my name. Why doesn't he call it the temple? I'm not absolutely sure. Later on it is referred to as the temple. But what it does do, it signifies 
that what Solomon is doing is something rather special. It's not Solomon's greatness and Solomon's name that is at stake in this building program. This is not just any ancient Near Eastern building program and a house for the gods of the nations. This is a house which is not for man but for God and for his glory. This is a house which is built as a dwelling place on earth for the living God. The God who is greater than all the gods of the nations. The one who is no mere man but the eternal God who is pleased to dwell among his people whom he has redeemed from the land of Egypt and brought to the land of Canaan and brought to Jerusalem. Solomon is well aware that the heaven of heavens cannot contain such an infinitely great God. But it is God who has established this building program as we will see. Jerusalem where the temple is to be built, is God's chosen dwelling place. Even in the introduction to my sermon, I want you to turn to another passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy and chapter 12. For there in verse 5, and again in verses 10 and 11, this is what the Lord says regarding a prescribed place of worship. He does this in the days of Moses, as they are about to leave Egypt, uh, sorry, leave the wilderness and enter into the land of Canaan. Verse 5. You shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all his tribes to put his name for his dwelling place and there you shall go. Verse 10. When you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. So you can see straight away that what Solomon is doing He's not promoting his name and his fame and his glory. He is concerned to see the fulfilment of these promises and the will of God. This is the place that God has chosen to reveal his name. That is to reveal himself. God's name is a way of saying all that God reveals of himself. And God's name is the object of our worship as it was of Solomon's worship. And Solomon plans then to build a house for the name of God where they will worship him and where God will dwell on the earth. The fact is, underlying all of this, that God chooses to make his name dwell. He himself dwells in a particular geographical location. In the days of Solomon, it is Jerusalem. 
It is tempting as we look at this chapter, and look at all these chapters to do with his building program. To look, as if, to look at it as if Solomon is the centre of attention. But this is not the case. It is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who has established Solomon as king, fulfilling his promises to David, giving him wisdom. God is the focal point. Solomon is but the means of carrying out the will and plan and purpose of God. And I want to show you tonight three ways in which that is the case. First of all, in building a house for God's name, Solomon is motivated by God's promises. In building a house for God's name, Solomon is motivated by God's promises. Listen again to Solomon's unashamed testimony to God when he speaks to Hiram, the pagan king of Tyre. Now, this pagan king was friendly to David. He loved David. He'd always loved David. And he was going to show friendship to Solomon. But nevertheless, he is a pagan king. And you can read a fuller account of this in Second Chronicles chapter 2. It's a briefer version here in 1 Kings chapter 5. But listen to the unashamed testimony that he bears to God as he speaks to this man Hiram. You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God. And then he goes on to speak in verse 2. The Lord put his foes under his feet. The Lord my God has given me rest on every side. And he says, and the crunch point is in verse 5, Behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. What a difference, you see again, to the proud boast of Nebuchadnezzar. This great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power, for my honour and for my majesty. Nothing of that. This is a house that I want to build, says Solomon, for the name of the Lord my God. He is aware that he is only a man. The house that he builds is the house where the eternal God will please, be pleased to dwell. And Solomon is driven by God's promise. He is motivated by God's promise. He says, I propose, literally, I am saying to you, Hiram, I am going to build a house. Why? Because God has said. And what has God said? David, your son, whom I set on the throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. And there is an emphasis in the original language, on the he. The he, the son of Solomon, he shall build the house for my name. He will have this honour bestowed on him. This is not some personal project then of Solomon. This is nothing less than Solomon working out God's revealed will. It was God's plan and purpose revealed to Israel through Moses in the days of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 12 again, the passage we saw earlier on. It was God's will that a dwelling place would be built for him. And Solomon is the man who is going to build that. 
And that's what makes Solomon decide to seek Hiram's help and gives him a massive order for timber. The cedars and the cypresses of Lebanon. Verse 6. But also linked to this promise of God is the encouragement drawn from God's providence. Verse 3. David could not engage in this building program because war occupied his time and money and energy. At the end of his reign, he enjoyed peace. And he began to collect materials for the building of the temple, even willing to donate of his own special kingly treasure. But it was Solomon, and it is Solomon who realises that now in the providence of God, the Lord my God has given me rest and peace on every side. No adversary, no evil occurrence. This is the time, this is the day then for me to build the dwelling place of my God. And Solomon is driven, he is motivated, he is focused, he has a very real sense of purpose. I am the one who has been appointed to do this particular part of God's will. This is a righteous cause. This is the time to do it. This is the time when the promise is fulfilled. This is the time when the providence of God has brought the peace that is the right situation then for us to build this house for the name of our God. The fact is, it is the Sovereign Lord who promises. And the Sovereign Lord who in his providence drives and motivates King Solomon. The fact that God has revealed his will and this is to be accomplished does not paralyze him in any way. He doesn't sit back and say, well now God has made these promises, now God has worked out all these providences, I'll just sit back and let it all happen. He is driven to action. He is galvanized into action. He knows that God uses means and he is the means that God is going to use to accomplish his purposes. So he takes the initiative and begins to collect in order to build. Timber, and then later on in the chapter we read about how he went about organizing the collecting of quarried stone from the mountains of Israel in order to build this temple. I would suggest then to you that what we are presented here in 1 Kings 5 is with a man, King Solomon, who is a man of faith, a man of obedience, a man who is responding in faith and in obedience to God's word and to God's providences. He is being driven, he is being motivated he realises this is a crucial moment in the history of our nation. And we must build this temple. One commentator puts it this way. The real foundation of the temple does not consist in huge blocks of stone, but it rests upon the promises of God. And I would suggest to you that Solomon grasped that and set about building the temple. The house for God's name, for God's name, for God's fame, for God's glory, both in Israel and in all the surrounding nations, as we will see 
of which Tyre is just one. It was in order to make God and his name great in all the earth. Now I think there's a very pertinent application to be made to all of us who profess to follow King Jesus, who desire to live with our allegiance to him, as we've just sung in that last hymn. We desire to live as Christians. Well, let me ask you a pertinent question. What is it that galvanizes you, that drives you into action in order to labour and serve Jesus Christ? What fuels your zeal, your enthusiasms, your desires, your prayers? And what will, more importantly, not only fuel your motive, but keep you persevering on course, continue to keep you focused throughout the remaining days of your life so that you serve God faithfully in this generation? You see, too often we are fits and starts Christians. We get an enthusiasm, we get our energy, and we go... And then we begin to wane. We lose that enthusiasm. We become dull. We become cold. Sometimes we become become even lazy. We grow weary. Our faith often wanes. And our prayers are not as fervent as they ought to be. And we lose interest. Or we feel that the task is just too great. We're up against too many odds. And we can't really accomplish it. And so we lose heart. And we feel weary and tired. And we say, oh, we can't carry on anymore. What is going to enable us to fight against that kind of spirit? Solomon was focused. Solomon stayed focused. He accomplished the task. And it was no mean task. What was it? He was gripped by the promises and by the providences of God. And his building of the house of God for the name of God was the consequence of him being focused in that particular way. If we have vague motives, or if we have no real motive at all, if we are then, we are then devoid of clear vision and lose a sense of purpose. We must have a clear motivation in serving Jesus Christ in this generation. Now we are not called to build a temple of stones and of timber. That is something that belongs to the past. That is the history of Israel. What is the temple of God now? The temple of God is the church of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is exalted in heaven, having completed his work here upon earth. He is focused. He is focused. The temple of God is the church of Christ. Believers are living stones, being built up into a spiritual house, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. The church is the house of God. The church of the living God. The church is the house that God is building for his name. That Christ is building for his name. And our motivation, our purpose, our goal, what should drive us is an awareness 
that Jesus Christ is focused and we are to imitate that same kind of focus. Jesus Christ is upon his throne, raised from the dead. He shall reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. But we are here upon this earth and we have a goal and a purpose. And we have the promises of God. We have the promises of Jesus Christ. When he says in Matthew 28, Go, and go into all the nations, and make disciples of the nations. Go and preach the gospel. What is his promise at the very end? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's his promise. And that promise of the presence of Christ ought to be something that galvanizes us. We are not alone in our struggles. The church of Christ is never abandoned. Christ says, I am present. I who am the sovereign Lord, who has all authority in heaven and earth, I am present with you. Isn't that going to make a difference to the way that you tackle the problems and difficulties that you might face as a Christian, the problems and difficulties that we might face as a church? And what about his promise in Matthew chapter 16? I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. We have the promise of his presence. We have the promise that he will build his church. And then of course he promised the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples they were to wait in Jerusalem, they were to pray until the day came, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God was poured out. He promised the Spirit, and the Spirit is still present, active, working in this world, convincing the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That is his role. God has sent the Holy Spirit, Christ has sent the Spirit into this world. And Jesus Christ has promised us a resurrection life. A resurrection life that we will enjoy in the new Jerusalem. Now one day that new Jerusalem will dawn in all its glory, in all its beauty, in all its perfection. No, that's, that's where we're going. That's where we're heading. Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He was a pilgrim. He laid hold of the promises. We lay hold of the promises. It's the promises of God. It's the providences of God from which we derive our motivation and our determination and resolution. We are made strong because we believe and when we believe those promises and act according to those promises, those promises ought, like, ought to be like a sword in our hands to wield in battle that we may be strong. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Isn't it in Ephesians 6? It ought to be like oil that wields, oil to the wheels in our praying. Grasp a hold of these things to keep us focused, to keep us preaching, to keep us bearing witness, to keep us praying, laboring, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul writes those words at the end of his glorious resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. He's talking about the victory. 
But his hour is in Christ. And he said, therefore our labour is not in vain in the Lord. There's your motivation. Your motivation comes out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may God give us in our hearts pure gospel motives that we might go on, we might press forward, we might be focused, we might be fueled by these promises that are almost like commands as we seek to do the will of God. That's what motivated Solomon. He wanted to glorify God both by his inward desires and by his outward acts. And I would go so far as to suggest that what we do is important, but the reason why we do what we do is even more important. Our motives matter before God. And our motives will be what drives us as to what we actually do. This is wholehearted biblical Christianity. This is imitating Solomon, it is imitating Jesus Christ. Can you imagine for a moment our Lord Jesus Christ not being focused? He was focused when he came to this world. His focus was on his death and on his resurrection. And what is his focus now? On the building of his church and the bringing of that church to glory and the ruling over all his enemies bringing of his church to perfection. He keeps that constantly before him. We are to imitate him and to be driven and motivated then by these promises and the providence of God. Now I said there were three things, three ways in which we see God as the focal point of chapter 5. We've seen this first of all in the building of the house for God's name. Solomon is motivated by God's promises. Now secondly, in building a house for God's name produces praise from a pagan king. Praise from a pagan king. Verse 7 seems to be a relatively small thing, but I think it is significant. It is unusual in the scriptures. We read that when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, and remember, these were words about God and God's promises and God's providences. He rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. All right, Hiram was well disposed towards David. And on the basis of what he had now heard, he decided he was going to be well disposed towards Solomon. Because he was a wise king. But we should probably read the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 without any chapter division. It says there, verse 34 of chapter 4, And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon. You see, it's in, the, it's in the bigger geographical context. Here is one man in particular. Later on we'll see the, sh the Queen of Sheba comes. But here it is Hiram, king of Tyre, from among all the nations. They'd heard of the wisdom of Solomon. They wanted to find out more. And when Solomon comes and testifies and says what he's going to do, 
we read that Hiram rejoiced greatly. We have a fuller version in Second Chronicles, chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has made the heaven and the earth. And we read in verses 8 and 9 of Hiram's ready and willing response. Not haughty disdain and contempt for David and for Solomon. He recognises God's king. He recognises God's kingdom. He recognises the wisdom that has been given to this man and agrees to fulfil Solomon's order of timber in return for food supplies year by year. Now the question is, how much did Hiram understand? There is no evidence that he embraced God with true saving faith. Whether Hiram was sincere or being diplomatic and polite or both. The point is this. A heathen king recognises that God is at work in this world. And he recognises it in Solomon and in the kingdom and in the plans that Solomon has for the building of the temple. And he actually makes contribution from his own land for the building of the temple. Whether he realises it or not, Hiram is contributing to the glory of God in the earth, among the nations. And it foreshadows the fact that one day all the kings of the earth will one day bow down and acknowledge the one true king whom God has appointed, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45 and verse 23, picked up by Paul in Philippians 2 verses 9 and 10, speaks of the day when every tongue will confess, when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you see, God is getting glory for for his own name from this pagan king. This pagan king acknowledges not only King Solomon, but he acknowledges the God of King Solomon. Let me apply this. Let me ask every single one of you here this evening, but particularly those who perhaps as yet do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. Do you recognise now and bow now before the Sovereign Lord of Heaven and Earth? Do you bow your knee to Jesus Christ? And do you confess with your tongue, with your mouth, that Jesus Christ is Lord? His Father has exalted him. Our Father in heaven has raised him from the dead and appointed him as Lord over all. Have you bowed the knee? Have you confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord? I say to you, it is wise to do so. Otherwise you will provoke God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, to anger, you will stir up wrath against yourself. What is the greatest sin that the human race commits every day? It is the refusal to bow. It is the refusal 
To bow before the God who alone is our creator, who alone is our redeemer, and who alone has raised his son Jesus Christ, the son of God, from the dead. The one who we sent in his love to save men and women from their sins. And refusal to acknowledge what God has done and is doing in Jesus Christ is the height of folly. For it will bring the wrath of God down upon your head. Expose you to everlasting damnation. And in any case, will you ever succeed to stand against the God of heaven? Will a mere creature say to him who made him, What is this that you have done? Can you imagine such a thing? It is impossible. God will have the glory one way or another. It is folly to resist. It is folly not to bow the knee. It is folly not to confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. If anyone is standing on his lofty pedestal, come now before God pulls you down off that pedestal. And cast yourself at the feet of Christ and cry for mercy and for pardon. Because he receives such sinners who cry to him in all their need. The third way in which God is seen as the focal point in 1 Kings 5 is this. In building God's house for God's name, the author of Kings, and we don't know who he was, the author of Kings confirms God's gift of wisdom to Solomon. Now in that last part of 1 Kings 5 that we didn't read, we read in verse 12. It is the comment of the author of the writer of Kings. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty together the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him the writer recognises that this is a spirit led observation on the part of the writer It is recorded for our observation and for our learning and for our instruction. It refers in verse 12 not only to what has gone before as Solomon has approached Hiram and asked him and put in this timber order and asked him for his help. But it is also deals with his actions after in verses 13 to 15. Solomon Verses 13 to 18, sorry. Solomon had wisdom from God to organise and complete the task. What you see in verses 1 to 11 is the beginning of this task. What you see in verses 13 to 18 is further organisation on the part of Solomon in order to gather all the materials that were needed in order to put this house for the name of God together. Solomon was given wisdom from God to accomplish that purpose. To organise and complete the task. It is interesting in Exodus chapter 31 when we read of the first tabernacle that was built. The tent of meeting. That God gave Bezalel and Aholiab the spirit of God. And wisdom and understanding to design the temple. 
And it is the same God who gives his spirit and who gives wisdom to Solomon. Wisdom if you like to get the job done. The workforce involved. If you run through the figures and do a little bit of arithmetic, you will find it is around 200,000 men. And that includes men that he would be sending to Hiram in Tyre to cut down trees and transport them along the sea coast to Joppa and then inland. It would include also those who were going to work in the quarries, those who were going to carry these stones and carry these logs and make sure they were brought safely to Jerusalem. Add this, you see, to chapter 4. What we saw in chapter 4 was Solomon's kingdom had order and there is order now in the building of the temple the house for God's name 200,000 men is no small number of men to organise into a labour force our biggest football stadiums in this country barely hold 100,000 people We're talking about twice that number. And they are organised, and they are organised from Jerusalem, from headquarters, from Solomon. He organises this vast labour force. And you can see how he does it here as he appoints the chiefs, the deputies who supervise the people who laboured in the work. Verse 16. Now some people conclude that what Solomon did here, did here was to turn these people into slaves. That would be like a return to Egypt. Remember what happened in Egypt. Israel in Egypt making bricks under the sun for Pharaoh. Was Solomon now imposing slave labour like the Pharaohs? Not at all. That would contradict what we read in chapter 4 and verse 20. Eating, drinking and rejoicing. It would contradict what we read in verse 25 of chapter 4. Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his own fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Now it is true, he did conscript remnants of the Canaanites who were living still within the confines of Israel's boundaries. But he did not enslave Israel in any way, shape or form. And in any case these labour forces were temporary. Once the temple was completed their work was done. They were not permanently slaves. There were limits to the number of trees and stones that were needed. It was a massive project, yes. But it didn't go on forever. He didn't enslave these people. Why not say rather of Israel and of Solomon? Although the text does not say, if they were involved in a building house for the name of the Lord their God, do you not think they might have had a sense of privilege of being involved in such a task? It was hard work. You carry timber, you carry stones, you're going to sweat. You're going to feel the pressure on your shoulders. You're going to feel aching limbs and legs and arms. Your hands perhaps are going to be torn. You're going to be weary at the end of the day. But even though it was a burdensome task, costly, 
in terms of energy and time. Do you not think it was a privilege to be involved in building a house for the name of the great God of heaven? That seems to me a perfectly reasonable supposition, even though there is no particular comment on that in this text. What happens, you see, is people read back into chapter 5, what they read in chapter 12 and verse 4. Where the people came to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, said, Your father made our yoke heavy. But they were pretty prejudiced. They were rebellious. You don't listen and get the truth from people who are trying to overthrow the king and form a split. You can't read that back. It's, it's foreign to read that back here. These men are not slaves. The author confirms what Solomon does is the result of God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom that was given to him. How is the house of God built? By the sweat and by the toil of hundreds of men. Verses 13 to 18 represent a high of activity. 200,000 men, busy as bees. Busy as ants. You know how Proverbs speak of the ants and its busyness. These men are going to behave in that kind of way. They're going to be promoting to the name and the glory of God. And we are called to busy ourselves to sweat and to toil for the sake of Christ. God can work without us. There's no question about that. He worked without Israel's help at the Red Sea. Moses was told, tell Israel, stand still and see the salvation of God. On the cross, of the tomb and the resurrection of Christ from the dead the sending of the Holy Spirit God works without us but his method is to use means human means you, me how is the church built by the willing labours of men and women who are sold on one thing promoting the honour and the glory and the name of God in and through the church of the living God the church of Jesus Christ men and women who study the scriptures men and women who pray men and women who kill sin men and women who resist Satan men and women who worship God Men and women who persevere in prayer, in preaching, in witnessing, in living holy lives. That's the kind of people we need to be. And the church ought to be a hive of holy activity that promotes the honour of Christ. How else do sinners become part of the church of Jesus Christ? How else are men and women one to Christ? How are you one to Christ? Didn't someone speak to you again and again and again and explain the gospel to you? They patiently toiled with you, perhaps, some of you. And perhaps over a period of many months, even years, in order to reason with you and persuade you that this was the truth. 
Sometimes it is a laborious task to win men and women to Christ. But that is how Christ builds his church. He uses the likes of you and the likes of me. And as you grasp that, you need then to go back to the promises and the providence of God. Because we need constantly to be motivated to fulfil this task. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't simply be a spectator. If you are driven by the promises of God and by the, pro- by the providence of God, you become involved, you become active. You want to serve God in this generation. Just as Solomon did in his generation. Do you really want to spend and be spent for those things that will pass away and are of no eternal significance? Are you labouring for an earthly crown or are you labouring for that crown which Christ gives the rewards of heaven and of glory? The crown of righteousness. What point is there labouring and sweating and toiling for that which God is going to condemn on the day of judgment? Do we not want to hear The cry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let us labour then. Let us toil, let us sweat. Let us toil knowing that our labour is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. O Lord our God, we come and consecrate ourselves afresh to you. For you, O Lord, alone are worthy. We come, we are as living sacrifices, offering ourselves up unto you to use us in order to establish your kingdom, to build your church here upon this earth. Help us, Lord, to serve you with good motives, as well as to labour and to toil as we reflect upon and are driven by your promises and by all your wise and good providences. Lord, may we be found faithfully serving you in this generation in which we live. Lord, glorify your name through us then, we pray, and build your church. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.